How's it going, everybody? It is 6 o'clock, roughly, on uh, Friday, July the 5th, 2019. And that means it is time for a belated but still happening trip down the homeward path. This is the show by me. My name is Adam. I'm a husband, father, full-time factory worker. And somehow, someway, we find a way to still be passionate and competitive with Magic the Gathering. And that's what this show is about. The people who want to be competitive, who want to compete, but they don't want the competition to take over and rule their lives. They don't want to, you know, give up what they're working toward in their life just to compete at Magic. It's about, you know, responsibility. It's about budget concerns. It's about, you know, finding time in between more pressing commitments, that kind of thing. So... This week, I, uh, as, I, as I did last week, I, you know, last week I talked about stuff that's a little bit more evergreen. I'd like to do that, especially this time of year, evaluating card classes or just, you know, mindsets, things of that nature. This week, I want to talk about the importance, even if it's bad, like even if what you have is bad, of having a plan. Because having a plan that is maybe not good but at least you know what you're going to be doing is better than having no plan at all. And what something else that's better than having no plan at all is our sponsor over at inkgaming.com. You can check them out. Plan to check them out. Use the plan to use the promo code CCMTG10 at checkout. Plan to get 10% off your order and plan to decorate your deck, your uh, playing space with all kinds of sweet stuff. While you're at it, plan to check out uh, the network over at constructedcriticism.com. Do yourself that favor. It's great. They are professionals at this by now. Uh, there's, there's content for everybody, and it just keeps growing. So I'm super excited for the future of the network. Uh, and if you want to support the show directly, you can hop on over where you can plan to pledge at patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. You see the alliteration there. I love it. Um, <laughs> The show's always going to be free, but if you enjoy what I'm doing enough, if you feel like you are getting enough value back that you want to help me keep making it, I will make sure that your donations are put to good use. So, all the shilling out of the way, we're going to start with our first segment every week, which is while we were away. We were away for just a week this time, not two weeks, no crazy nonsense happened, but while we were away this week, M20 released on Magic Arena and the London Mulligan has arrived, finally. I guess technically it doesn't until the 12th, but... Pre-release events are happening for some of you as you, you know, you're, you're on your way home from them as you're listening to this, and we've got London Mulligans for these pre-releases, so it's kind of important. Uh, we've also got a banned and restricted announcement coming up on Monday. I'm kind of eagerly awaiting that one because it'll give me some better, more informed insight as to what I want to do with Modern. Uh... As far as the M20 cards being released on Arena, though, there's a lot of stuff to be excited about. There's some cards that have really outperformed my expectations. Chief among them, Chandra Flame, or Acolyte of Flame, I believe is the name. Uh, one red red, Planeswalker, four loyalty. She has two zeros and a minus two. Uh, the first zero is put a loyalty counter on each red Planeswalker you control. The second zero is creating two one one elementals with haste, sacrifice them into turn. And then the last one is essentially the enter the battlefield ability on Goblin Dark Dwellers. You just cast an instant or sorcery out of your graveyard that costs three or less, full free, exile the card. 
all of these are good things. Like, if you want to play Chandra in an aggressive red deck just to flashback your burn spell, she's good. She applies pressure until you want to start doing that with the, the elemental ability. She only costs three mana. Like, it's just really good. Uh, if you want to play her in the, the Teamer Elementals deck, you can. She's absolutely absurd alongside Risen Reef, which is getting my pick is one of my favorite cards that I've seen on stream so far. Uh, and then the, the minus ability should really need no introduction. The card is just the, the idea of getting two spells back out of your graveyard for free is just obscenely powerful and especially at three mana. And, you know, the first time you go Chandra on three, shock your creature and then lightning strike your other creature, you get a two for one for three mana. That's really powerful. Really, really powerful. To say nothing of getting a double lava coil or getting a double charter course or anything in the not anything of the nonsensical side. Like Chandra also just has a home in the is it Phoenix decks by virtue of being a three mana creature. Uh, well, not a creature, a three mana planeswalker that applies a lot of pressure with the the one one elemental tokens. But then you can also use Chandra to flash back stuff like charter course, like lava coil, like. Uh, tormenting voice what have you like it's almost like having an extra finale but not quite you don't get the same value out of her right up front but her best value is going to be in later turns anyway where you can minus two to cast your first spell for free out of your graveyard and then proceed to cast the other two from your hand and go off like the card's just so good so so good and then, you know, right there in the three drop camp with her is Risen Reef, which many are calling the second coming of Rogue Refiner. And it's really hard to argue that card. It's less valuable on a rate, like as far as what you're paying mana for up front, you know, because you're getting essentially a coiling Oracle up front for one extra mana. But the fact of the matter is it provides value the turn you get it and every turn thereafter, if you're, if you're even partially committed to it. Even just the one-two punch of Risen Reef and Chandra Acolyte of Flame is just absolutely absurd. Untapping with either one of them in play and then resolving the other leads to a rather large sum of value that you can get just all at once. So, Teamer mid-range slash elementals, I'm here. I'm going to do it. I'll, you know, Teamer is love. Teamer is life. Teamer energy was my favorite deck that I've played since I started playing Standard again by a pretty substantial margin. Like I played Teamer Energy mid-range slash aggro while Aetherworks Marvel was still legal. That's how much I love that deck. I played it then and it was good. So if I've got the option to play a good Teamer mid-range deck in standard, I'm probably going to give it a shot. But that kind of that gives a nice neat bow around while we were away. There's a bunch of other stuff going on. Uh, the... The general consensus is that the M20 did nothing to detract from the standard format and only added to it. We got new decks, new ideas, new new options. Elementals finally being a deck is something that I've always wanted to see as someone who played during Lorwyn when we had the Flamekins and they were hot garbage. I love seeing them be good now. I also love new Omnath just because I love Omnath and this is like the most playable, the most competitively playable one we've ever gotten. So... I'm here for that. 
So moving on to our main topic this week, and it ties back into what I did on riding in cars with cards back in back on Sunday, going in or Monday going into Tuesday. Uh, I guess it was Sunday going into Monday. That's right. It was Sunday night. That's when I did that. Anyway, I played an FNM here at home, and I kind of had to scramble at the last minute to get cards together to play because I didn't realize it was going to be modern until about an hour and a half before the event. I am not shelling out to buy the cards to finish Is It Phoenix and Modern for f and I'm not doing that. Like, that's not a fiscally responsible decision because even if I have literally all the cards, there's that, that maybe gets me second place consistently instead of getting me fourth place or fifth place. The, the difference in prize support, no more often than I have gotten to play in person lately. Like, it's not worth the investment. So what I had to do for myself and for Brett, who was the only deck he had with him that he felt comfortable playing for the modern that we were expecting was Blue Red Thunderous Wizards, which was an old budget deck from MTG Goldfish. And we came in with a plan. And while we didn't end up just, you know, you know, dominating anybody, we didn't expect to. But we went in with a plan. The, The plan was don't embarrass yourselves, play a proactive deck and see what happens. You know, play tight, play smart. And we have we had a little bit of a swerve for both of us in the event that we encountered something that was hostile. So, and that got me thinking because uh, the two of us went to combine four, three, and one. I went two, one, one. Brett went two, two. I really should have been three, one, but we lost a lot of time in, in game one to, in round one, game one to my opponent being relatively unfamiliar with their deck. And then a lot of time going into game three because my opponent was not sure how to sideboard. And there, you know, there was just time lost. We ended up starting game three with three minutes to play. I was up 20 to eight at the end of extra turns and the game was ruled a draw. So sometimes these things happen. But this isn't the tournament report. I already did that. What this is about is about the importance of having a plan. There are three very important things that a plan will give you. One, a mental shortcut. The first thing a plan gives you in having one, even if it's bad, the first thing it gives you is a mental shortcut. It saves on your mental fatigue. Saving on mental fatigue, even in just a four-round tournament at the end of the night, at the end of a work week, that's important. The less you have to think, the less you have to actively engage, the better your evening is going to go. You know, the less surprised you are, essentially. And creating shortcuts helps keep you from being surprised. Now, it can have a double-edged effect where you are much more interested in the, the shortcut that you've established versus, you know, kind of adapting in the moment. So it's important to keep a little bit of that flexibility to you. But, you know, having a plan of attack, even if it's awful can give you a shortcut to approach a way, you know, it, it sets a, sets a stop sign in your brain. It sets a flag, a waypoint in your brain. This is the out I need to play toward. This is how this game is going to go according to how I sideboard or how, you know, how I'm configured for this matchup. For me, for example, my matchup against the graveyard decks was always going to be awful because we, between Brett and I collectively, we own zero Leyline of the Void. Neither one of us were playing white to have access to rest in peace. And we own zero surgical extractions. 
We were never going to have a very good time against the Graveyard Dax. But we both had a plan. Mine was bounce spells. And I know that sounds silly. My plan was bounce spells. I was playing cards like Vapor Snag, like uh, Void Snare, which has been a little bit of an unsung hero for me. Uh, Echoing Truth is another really big one. The reasoning was my the I was playing Is It Phoenix. It was much, much poorer than a proper build. Like, I don't have Thing in the Ice. I don't have Aria. I don't have Manamorphose. But I still had Thought Scour, Serum Visions, Sleight of Hand, all the good stuff. I had Arclight Phoenix. I had, you know, the one Crackling Drake plus one in the board. I had access to Sahili's. I had Narsets. I, you know, I had all this stuff I wanted to play. And I ended up settling on a 75 I didn't love, but I, you know, I, was, I was comfortable with it. I, was, I could live with it. Uh, Terramander ended up occupying the slot that... Uh, that oh, God. Uh, that Thing in the Ice normally occupies. But it was it, it allowed me to play to outs that I knew like I knew how the game needed to go in order for me to win. I knew what cards I needed to see. Now, ultimately, I never played against any graveyard decks. I played against uh, I played against Teamer Reclamation in round one. Yes, Teamer Reclamation in modern with cryptic commands and Snapcaster mages and remands and yeah. It was, it was a thing of beauty. Ryan Hickman deserves all the credit for that beautiful design. It's really, it's, it's better than it sounds, even if it's not particularly great, it's better than it sounds. Uh, and then I played against Counters Company. I played well, but the cards didn't flow right in game three. We ended up going to three games. I feel like I played well. I played to the outs that I needed to draw and just couldn't find them. Even with, you know, 16 cantrips in my deck. It just didn't happen. Sometimes, you know, that's magic. Sometimes you, you, you lose to your own deck. It happens. And then uh, I played against Grixis Delver and I played against Rakdos Octomancer. Uh, Grixis Delver was the closest to being a graveyard matchup. I guess the, the Rakdos Octomancer a little bit too, but like both of those decks were largely disruption and light counter magic suites. Well, the Rakdos was, it was, you know, disruption, removal, uh, and efficient creatures, and those are the matchups I'm going to thrive in. The ability to just get on the board, get after them. If the removal doesn't exile, I can set up a sequence later where I just get everything back and kill them. Like, that's great. Those are the matchups I live for, right? Well, but I had a plan for every matchup I was in. Like, I don't have Snowlands and I don't have access to something like Scred, so and I don't have access to Thing in the Ice. So my matchup against these Gurmog Angler decks, against these, you know, these Pyromancer decks that are going to get really big or get really wide, is not particularly good. Where it would be if I had the correct cards. So I developed a plan. Echoing Truth was part of that plan. Uh, Void Snare Vapor Snag against cards like Gurmag Angler, which are, you know, it's a big tempo swing to bounce a Delve creature. Because a lot of times they've just exiled their whole graveyard to make it. So it created a shortcut in my mind as to how I needed my games to play out. And that allowed me to play a little bit more worry-free as to you know, how I was going to interact with the various different types of strategies. The bounce had leverage in other matchups. Like if my opponent's bored into Leyline of the Void, 
a well-timed void snare to bounce it back to their hand would allow me to then go off that turn, get a bunch of phoenixes out of the bin. If you know, if I've got everything sculpted to that point, I could bounce a ley line, create my big combo turn, and then smash them while the shields were down, so to speak. That's something else that I really liked about it. It was multiple. And then, of course, against more dedicated, like against the, the dedicated control decks, decks that were intending to string the game out and hate out my graveyard with a passion, we had another little sideboard swerve where I just boarded into different threats. And instead of being a Turbo Phoenix deck, I was like essentially the standard Is It Drake's deck or like a uh, modern Is It Pyromancer deck, just a handful more threats. And just get really wide on the board. My, my game, my game all takes place on the table. Potentially, sometimes after they board out removal or board out a lot of removal, in favor of graveyard disruption. Like these are things we can get away with. You know, is it a great plan? No, but I had a plan. It was an it was an approach that I feel like would have worked if I'd sat down to play against those matchups. And, you know, bounce being a tempo loss against the Hogak deck just by being able to put the 8-8 back in their hand. Echoing Truth being able to clean up all the 2-2 the zombie tokens from Bridge from Below. Like, all of that's... It's something that can work. Is it great? No. But at least I know what my outs are. And that's important. Creating that shortcut. The second thing it gives you is confidence. Because if you know, how, if you know what you're playing to, you know how you need to play. A really good example of that is game three against Counters Company. I, I, I was staring down a turn two Graft Digger's Cage. And I ended up with a difficult looting decision. Or I, I had, uh, I take that back. I, I looted on turn one. And I knew, I had a feeling these games were going to go a little longer than I wanted them to. The, the structure of my hand was such that I was not going to get a really fast draw like I did in game two. And it put me in a situation where I, what I when I thought about it, the way I was going to win that game, based on the structure of my hand and the way his deck was, was configured in game two and in game one, the way I was going to win was by stretching the game out and trying to lean on the superior nature of my threats, make him answer every single card I played. Because if he's answering my cards, he's not comboing me. And then in the meantime, the bounce can provide vital tempo. You know, bouncing a devoted druid was the key to like the entire plan here. Bouncing slash burning a devoted druid was how I was going to get there. Now, there were some mistakes made near the end of that game that I feel maybe cost me. I ended up burning a bunch of lightning bolts in order to kill a devoted druid while at like four life staring down a burnt and forge tender that I just couldn't interact with thanks to a pair of giver of runes on the table. But I had a plan, which was to make sure I didn't die to the combo and especially after you know, I looting, I discarded a Phoenix and a, a Echoing Truth because I wanted to get lands. I wanted to make sure I could hit my land drops and keep casting spells because my opener had two lands in it, but I wanted to make sure I could get to three and you know begin to execute. 
and he plays Grafdigger's Cage on turn two, and that immediately set me in the direction of, okay, long game mode, let's go, I've got this plan. That, that made me confident, and I ended up stretching the game out, putting myself in a position where late in the game I had four or five chances that if I draw a threat, he scoops because he can't actually kill me before I kill him. And it just didn't materialize. Like I was to the I was to the point where if I had drawn a phoenix and hard casted, it was going to get there. And I just kept drawing like cantrips and land, and cantrips were drawing more cantrips and then drawing lands. So these things happen. I don't love it, but these things happen. The same thing happened in my matchup against Rakdos Octomancer in game two. Uh, we had a really really tight game. And I knew my out in that situation was anything that could deal three damage either in the air or upstairs with a lightning bolt. So what I needed, based on the way the board was, was to survive until I could find one. And ultimately, we ended up getting there. Because I drew Young Pyromancer with Finale of Promise in my hand and no instance in the graveyard, but I did have a Serum Visions. And I said, well... He's got one removal spell. If I can find an instant into potentially another finale or find, you know, cantrip into, you know, if I can get really lucky here or if I can just get, you know, a, the, the not so negative side of variance, I've got a chance. My out is just either hitting a Phoenix play that kills him or... Finding a lightning bolt. And I know based on his board, he had Gurmag Angler and uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist. Arcanist was going to be able to cast one fatal push out of the graveyard. That was the only removal spell in his graveyard. And I'm at five. His hand is empty, so I know what my out is. It's find burn on top or find spell I can cast. So I said, okay, here we go. Let's go Pyromancer, Finale for Serum Visions, draw a card, and I draw the card, and it's Thought Scour, and I'm just like beside myself. And then I scry two, and I have Lightning Bolt Finale on top of the deck. Like, well, this wins no matter what. All I have to do is survive. And it would have been really easy to tilt off having drawn the, the Thought Scour or even seeing the Lightning Bolt on top and just expecting the worst to happen. But I also knew that even if he has double removal spell, like he draws Bolt for one of the tokens, I'm not dead. My game plan in that situation was survive. I know what my out is. Um, you know, confidence, knowing what you, you know, creating that mental shortcut can lead to better play because you know what you're playing toward. And then the last thing that having a plan does, the, the third and probably the most important thing, is it gives you the opportunity to understand why you're doing something in Games of Magic. And I know that sounds like nothing. I know that sounds like nonsense to say out loud. I really do. Like, I understand. It sounds crazy. Of course, we know why we're doing stuff. This, the board's like this. This is what's going on. But it's 
one of the things I've always kind of harped on a lot of my local guys is if they're not, if, give me a compelling reason for why you're doing something. If you, if you're asking for my opinion on a play, on a sequence, tell me why you made it. And if you went into it knowing what your out was in a situation, if you went into it confident in your plan for how the game was going to go from there on, it's a lot easier to justify that decision. Because having a reason for something is almost as important as doing it at all. Because if you do it with a reason, with conviction, knowing how the game needs to go, knowing what your plan is, you can learn and improve based on the outcome. If you did it because, well, that guy needed to die and I had a burn spell, so whatever. I don't, I, you know, it's the idea of giving yourself between the mental shortcut you created by, by crafting this plan from the confidence you exhibit from knowing what it is and playing for it. By virtue of those two things, it can make you a better magic player even if the plan doesn't work because now you know. You are able to learn. You're able to improve because of it. Now, I'm definitely going to do a little bit of tuning. I'm going to be doing some tweaking before I ever play this deck again. It's not because it was bad. It's because it was good, and I want to make it better. Same goes for Brett's deck. He went 2-2, but the two losses were to the fully, fully powered Is It, Fe or Is it Phoenix and blue-white control by someone who's been playing Teferi of Dom Hero of Dominaria when it released. Like, Charles is, Charles is one that wants to pour one out for his boy Teferi after he rotates out of standard. That's how sad he is. I have a feeling he would be happy to play Historic just to get a chance to play Teferi control in a, in a smaller format again. Like, that's how much Charles loves Teferi, and that's, that was Brett's second loss. He absolutely eviscerated the humans player and Ryan playing mono red prison when he played those two. So again, with him, we had a plan. His deck was more proactive than mine. He was playing thunderous wizards. He's an aggressive prowess aggro deck. Like get them dead. I've got eight lightning bolts. I've got a bunch of cantrips to make sure I don't flood out. And or get mana screwed. I, I got enough cantrips to smooth out my draws and make sure I can play magic respectively. And then if I ever get to untap with Adelie's the Cinder when someone dies. That's something I've discovered in playing Is It, is it Prowess in Modern. Is if you're playing Adelie's and you get to untap with it and any other creature. Even if it's just an animated mutavolt. Somebody's dying. <laughs> I killed an Infect player from 15 with Adelie's and a Monastery Swift Spear. Because I had Bolt, Lightning, Lightning in my hand and they died. Like, you know, declare attacks and the Infect player says no blocks and you, you know, next level their inked gaming playmat thing, you're like, did you just say no blocks? Because you're dead. <laughs> it's just utter nonsense. But his plan in most of his matchups was to be the aggressor. And then against the, the matchups where he was not favored by taking that line, we had both a handful of utility cards that would allow him to keep his foot on the gas and bounce spells of his own, uh, some interactive elements, uh, burn spells that were better at killing creatures. You know, 
a couple of bigger cards to go into after sideboard. But then the weirdest and probably the most beautiful thing we did is we put the Madcap Experiment Platinum Imperium package in a sideboard. Why? Because we honestly, we didn't have anything better to do with it. But it was also a way to diversify the way his deck was going to attack you. Because if your opponent sees a bunch of cheap, efficient creatures, they're going to go into cheap, efficient removal. Cards like Fatal Push, cards like Disfigure, cards like Bolt. You know what? None of those cards kill. None of those cards kill Platinum Imperion. And if you're playing against the Burn deck, which you can reasonably race in the first game, they're not boarding into Smash to Smithereens in game two. Because you're a deck full of creatures, and you're racing them. And they just want to win the race. And you trade aggressively, you use your burn spells on the creatures, and then you just slam a Madcap Experiment into Platinum Imperion, and it's off to game three. Unless you won game one, and then you win. Like, we had a plan. It was also a way to add an extra big play a big threat to the matchup against the control decks where they are going to be able to kill your limited number of actually threatening creatures. I think in Brett's list, we were playing soul scar. We were playing soul scar, sage of Epitier, storm chaser, mage, Adelies, And that was all his creatures plus four muta vaults. But again, we created the mental shortcut in his head, be aggressive as much as possible and if doing what your deck normally does doesn't work, we have some options for you that allowed him to play smarter, that allowed him to play more confidently, and he was able to win matchups that I was positive he was not going to. And even in the matchups, like the, the matchup against Is It Phoenix was not particularly close because, again, we knew the graveyard deck matchups were not going to be good. So that was just a matchup we conceded, and that's another important point to make. If you know you can't reasonably beat something, there's no shame in conceding a matchup. That's another part of having a plan, is realizing you can't craft one that's going to win that, so your energy is better focused on something else. And in his case, he didn't have that big explosive one-turn potential off of you know a card or two off the top of his library like mine did. So we gave him the best chance we could to win the other matchups. And then the blue-white control matchup, he actually went into the sideboard package, you know, went into the Madcap Experiment Platinum Imperium, and got it off and almost killed him with it. <laughs> like, even though I lost that game, I'm super proud because it worked. Like, Charles had boarded out some amount of the, the removal that was going to be able to kill it, and had to like frantically scramble through his deck to find the Supreme Verdict he left in to, to catch up because the Platinum Imperium was killing him. So, I mean, it's, it goes without saying that having a plan is vital. But even at the lower levels, having, one, having a plan is good. Even when you are positive you are not going to do well, all you got to have is a plan. Give yourself a chance. You might be surprised by the end result. God knows I was. I was expecting both of us to be OX or 1X. Just, you know, 1 and 3, good times, modern's great, you know. <laughs> Guess I'll get my teeth kicked in. And then we ended up showing up. We got lucky a little bit with the matchup lottery because there was not a single Hogak deck in the entire 18 person FNM, but we also just 
like we went in with a plan and both of us stuck to it for a change. It's a far cry from what I did at Memphis where on, you know, for the standard double up, I built my deck 15 minutes before and was just kind of winging it all the way across the board. And things worked out. That wasn't what happened here. We knew what we had available to us and we just kind of patched things together as best we could. And despite the fact that we were severe underdogs in the situation, we gave ourselves a chance by coming up with a plan and sticking to it. And that applies not just to gameplay, that applies not to just deck selection, not to sideboard plans, that applies to card acquisition. Have a plan. I've talked about that before. Get cards you know you're going to need first. Then worry about the ones you don't need. Then worry about the ones you think are going are gonna to go up. Then worry about the ones you, you are positive are going to go up, but you can live with getting to play if they don't. Like, have a plan, execute it, stick to it. That's all I, that's all I got. So with that, it's time to tell you where you can find me. You can find me on Twitter. I am at HomewardPathMTG. You can find me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. You can join the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. It is starting to rain. Oh my, it's starting to rain. Um, you can join the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. It's open invite. You just send a request. If you're not a horrible person, we'll give you a shot. See how you do. Uh, and... You can join the patron Discord if you become a patron of the show. That's one of the rewards. Uh, and last but not least, every week, it's one of my favorite things to do. It's, okay, let's be honest. It's my favorite thing to do. Uh, I'm a dad. I love a good pun. So hashtag MTG dad jokes just made all the sense in the world. Let's see. Oh, wow. Well, somebody did that for me. Somebody I've never gotten one from before. So, first one was from Tom Ross. The, the name of the card, is it's from Modern Horizons, is Generous Gift, and the picture is a gigantic elephant. It is the literal elephant in the room. The flavor text says the best presents are impossible to re-gift. Ross says, my, my suggested flavor text for this card was, your threat has been rendered irrelevant. Irrelevant. Better pachyderm that one in, huh? Um, <laughs> I try. I, I really do. Uh, the next one is from at aka Yanni. It says, have we started calling Risen Reef Rogue Reef Einer yet? I'm gonna. I'm gonna call it that at least like a hundred times. Uh, oh, come on. Don't do that to me. There it is. We have another one that says, uh, uh, the, the actual, the original tweet is from at 22Bears, says, what are people's thoughts on the M20 Cavaliers? Feels like we've seen very little discussion about them. And uh, at Mr. Bernie says, would you say people's takes on them have been Cavalier? Mm? Mm? <laughs> Love it. Uh, and then we had a really good one from earlier today, uh, from at that gal, Carolyn says the thread we've been waiting for, whether or not I let my, whether or not I would let planeswalkers borrow my car 
And these are just absolute gold. I love these. First one says, we'll start with, would I let Chandra borrow my car? No, she's always doing burnouts. Well, what about Teferi? Well, yes, he would drive it through a temporary rift and give me my keys back before he even asked for them. What about Dovin? Dovin looks at my car, his eyes glow red, and he says, eh, never mind. <laughs> Tezzeret says, yes, he'll even get the oil changed while he's out. What a guy! Thrax, I hope you're listening because that 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 one I think is for you. <laughs> uh, what about Sahili? He says, heck yes, I would get back something that would put a supercar to shame. Ajani says, yes, as long as he agrees to vacuum the seats when he's done. Uh, Whatley? No, Raptor Copilot ruins upholstery. What about Jace? Didn't want to let him borrow it, but handed over the keys anyway for some reason. What a swell guy. <laughs> says uh, Garuk. What about Garuk? Says, no, he's too hard on the brakes. Comes to a screeching halt at every Animal Crossing. Would I let Gideon borrow my car? Why not? He'd bring it back without a scratch on it because of the whole indestructibility thing. And he'd top off the gas tank to boot. Says Nissa? No, no, I, I'm not letting Nissa borrow my car. She'd either donate it or trade it in for a hybrid. Then she'd tell me to walk. Don't need that kind of negativity in your life. Liliana says, well, I let her borrow it once after it died. And ever since I've been hearing strange groaning noises coming from the garage. Uh, says, would I let Soren borrow my car? It says, no, it's construction season. And he's already had his share of run-ins with heavy stone objects on the Erie. That last part, the, the last two words were me story anyway uh would i let kiora borrow my car no two words water damage <laughs> would i let arlen borrow my car yes as long as she brings it back before the full moon and it says would i let bolus borrow my car this is probably one of my favorite ones so would i let bolus borrow my car it says no he would steal all my spark plugs because sparks uh <laughs> Says, would I let Domery borrow my car? No, a mini would never survive in the rubble belt. What about uh, Zhang Yanggu? I'm positive I'm butchering that pronunciation. And uh, it says, yes, and then it's a gif of a dog riding with its ears out, with its head out the window. Would I let the Wanderer borrow my car? No, 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 no. She'd keep crashing it for kinetic energy. Doretti? No, I'd have to buy it back in pieces from the chop shop. Ashiok? Yes, because I'd be terrified of what happens if I say no. What about Vraska? No, it'd take weeks to clear away all the bad drivers she turned to stone. <laughs> Those are all great. And then, last but not least, did I miss that one? No, I did that one. Okay. Uh... We have the announcement from Matt T uh, Tabak, uh, Tabak whatever, however you pronounce his name, at Watsy Matt. Uh, Corpse Knight is a 2-2 creature. If it attempts to convince you otherwise, please bear with it, but it is indeed a 2-2. Bear with it. Um, I appreciate that one, Luke. Thanks for tagging me again. I really do appreciate that. Uh, please bear with it because it's a 2-mana two 2-2. Two -two. It's, it's actually a bear, but it's a zombie knight. Whatever. Um, shock it with great with with extreme prejudice and get that thing off the table because that card's way too powerful and limited 
<laughs> so thanks everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed, uh, questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, send them to me. I like talking to people clearly, or I wouldn't do this. So, uh, get your, get your lessons in this week. Uh, learn what you can about the limited environment. I am skipping on the pre-release this time. I'm probably just going to save my money for draft weekend so I can make sure I get cards I need cards. I want, and I, I seem to do better at building my deck when I draft versus when I play sealed. So I will I will be playing draft weekend instead of sealed weekend. It's just a personal choice, not anything against the other format. I'm just awful at it. So uh, again, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. And I will catch you on Monday, more than likely. Uh, Monday night going into Tuesday morning. For our next episode of Riding in Cars with Cards, which will have a little bit of a tie-in with whatever next week's Homeward Path topic is. So stick around. Stay tuned. I'll catch you later.